Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. We'll be discussing Sandman Season 1, 2022. The creative team uh, showrunners on this one were David S. Goyer, David Heinberg, and of course, Neil Gaiman. Right. First thing we need to do here is just talk about what our angle is is going to be, how we're going to proceed in this episode. First thing to, to say is that we are just talking about the entire season in this one single episode. Second thing to know going in is that our interest in this is really as an adaptation of the book, right? We're a books podcast, we're a books network, so that's really going to be our our focus. Now, we will try, try is the, the word there, uh, we will try not to get too deep into the weeds. We're not going to go through this panel by panel, but we, uh, you know, did spend about 30 hours talking about the issues that have been adapted in this season. And so that's going to really be our focus. But we are going to stay as broad as we can. And so we have divided the episode into conversations about complete story arcs or standalone episodes rather than going episode by episode either. And even before that, we'll actually just talk about some of the aspects of the show that are really germane to the whole thing, such as yeah, the effects, the music, that sort of thing. So uh, let's start there, or, or really, let's, I guess, start by plainly stating here what material from the book was adapted in this season. And that is all of Preludes and Nocturnes. That includes The Sound of Her Wings. It's all of The Doll's House, except for the standalone issue, Tales in the Sand. And then we also get Dream of a Thousand Cats and Calliope as a single bonus episode that was released, I guess, a few weeks after the season was published. So that's what we'll be talking about today. And to kick us off here, Brent, I want to actually go back to a conversation that you and I were having a little bit when we were covering Preludes and Nocturnes and Doll's House, but had very explicitly in our Doll's House wrap-up episode. And this is something that was actually prompted by listeners. And this was the conversation about whether Sandman was horror or Sandman was fantasy. Now, something we talked about in that episode is that you and I were latecomers to Sandman. We came to Sandman when it had shifted into full-on fantasy mode. And so we always also read these first two volumes, these first two story arcs, as fantasy. But early readers read these first arcs as horror. And all of the marketing for the comic was as horror. The people writing the introductions to these volumes, Clive Barker, for example, horror writers, and so on. And I think that this is a tension here that exists in the TV show. And maybe let me just try to stay as neutral for you, at least, as possible to kick a question to you, Brent, and just to ask you, what genre is this TV show? I think this TV show is fantasy. I think that there are some elements of horror that kind of creep in um, out of necessity in some of the stories. There are some minor visual horror depictions, but for the most part, we're spared most of the horror depictions. But I think it clearly is not horror in the way it otherwise would be. And, and we can kind of get into it as we go. But I do want to mention just even from the the, the beginning of the beat, um, the palette choices that are made for the first pilot episode, things are done in a lot less, you know, what is the fearful thing? What do we have to be concerned about? And even when we talk to the fate that um, dream bestows in terms of, uh, you know, the eternal waking uh, curse is not what dream gives, for instance. 
Right. Yeah. And and really the thing we should say too is that the very first thing that happens on screen is is something that doesn't actually exist on page. And it is a, a kind of prologue where we get Dream or Tom Sturridge as Dream, but we get Dream doing a voiceover telling us who he is, what uh, it means to be an endless, and what his realm is. And the first visuals that we're getting are of the dreaming. Right. So TV show viewers are introduced to this right away as a fantasy world with a fantasy trope, as opposed to book readers who are thrown into occult stuff right away. And so that struck me as a real big, uh, a real big choice here to say just explicitly, this is going to be a fantasy show. However, the first two story arcs that we're going to tell actually feature a lot of horror tropes, occult stuff. and serial killer convention and so on. Nonetheless, this is explicitly a fantasy show. And then that's something they keep up, the the, the showrunners keep up throughout the whole season, is that we get a lot more of the dreaming in these first two story arcs than uh, in the show than we do in the book. And in fact, characters who uh, we all know from the dreaming, from the comics, but who do not show up this early in the comics run, they are here in the TV show. Pumpkinhead is a, a you know played by Luke Skywalker, played by Mark Hamill, is a, a great example of that. And so, yeah, my feeling of this also was this is that that the is that Netflix and then also the creators have decided that this is a fantasy show. I'm going to just tease this now. We'll talk more explicitly about this later. I think that was a big mistake. Hmm. Okay, well, let's talk about that later. I do want to, though, say, I mean, I agree with your fundamental um, assertion that we definitely get more characters from the dreaming and in that way, see more of that element of the dreaming in the show. I actually disagree that we see more of the dreaming because I feel like what they've limited the dreaming to is here's a beach. We briefly get a gate only in the first episode, and then we get mainly the castle and a bridge over a river. And I swear the same green field for eight different locations in the dreaming. And, and, and what's taken away is we, we don't get the weird, we don't get the, the kind of surreal art, but I, I do think that, you know, the dreaming to me in this show, on the one hand, I was wowed by the initial depictions we get, particularly right off the bat, you're right, of like, here's the castle and, and you know, and here's, you know, some kind of a, a galleon going under a large stone bridge and, hey, look, there's Martin Tenbones already on the ship and like, there's some great stuff there, but then I feel like I don't get to see much of the dreaming itself. So I get characters, but I don't get the bit before, sometimes in the comic, there's bits where it's left to your imagination as to where they're walking. I feel like I get a lot of the library and the throne room and not a lot of any other part of the dreaming. You're right, Brent. My grammar there was terrible. I didn't mean to say that we we saw more of the dreaming, but that we saw the dreaming more is really what I meant there. Because you're right, yes. actually, we see less of the dreaming. And I also, like you, I mean, I'll say this maybe more plainly than you're saying, which is that um, I thought it didn't look good, most of it anyway. I did not capture my imagination. It didn't feel like a place that I wanted to go the way that the dreaming on page definitely does. And maybe we should just segue into talking more broadly here about production values in general. There were some effects and locations that I did like, but for the most part, I thought they looked 
kind of like mediocre video game effects and and also even location choices. But there were some things that I did really like. One that I, I really liked was the image of St. Peter's Square or like a, a mirror image of that in hell. That is the the last thing that we see in the, the, the season proper that I thought was great. And I'll also say just right here that I absolutely adored the animation in Dream of a Thousand Cats, which was an entirely animated episode. I thought that was great. Uh, what were your sort of broadly speaking feelings about the uh, really the, the look of the show? Really mixed. Um, in a lot of ways, I completely agree with you in terms of being disappointed. There were some some bits of it I loved and were knocked it out of the park. They clearly put a lot of money and a lot of effort into the first episode, which is the kind of thing I think you do with series nowadays is just like you get the audience hooked. And so the opening shots that we were given, which you noted are not in the comic, but we get of, you know, seeing, you know, the, the castle and kind of all of its grandeur and parts of the library and denizens of the dreaming, some of whom, you know, we, we get to encounter later in other volumes and some of which are, you know, appear later in the volumes this is covering. That was gorgeous. The gates were wonderful. But then there are other bits that I just didn't care for. Uh, Lucifer's throne room, the throne room itself, I liked the dark reflection of the St. Peter, Peter's square. I actually didn't care for, but my problem wasn't the square itself. I actually liked the architecture of it. I think you and I are in agreement on that. Um, I was just left wanting regarding the character animations in the, which we just got like a sea of, you know, kind of, as you said, bad video game kind of monsters that are far below. And given the wonderful panels that, you know, is your favorite splash panel from that episode issue. And rightfully so of just like these wonderful, strange demons. And if you're going to CGI it, like give us something. Now I really did like bits here and there though, like squatter bloat who we got a lot of, I preferred the squatter bloat here in many ways to the squatter bloat we get in the comic, at least within the visual landscape that, that, he, that it's depicted. I really liked the attention to detail of what was in Burgess's mansion, that like what was in his study and the things on his desk. I really liked the attention to detail of all the things in Richard Maddox's house. There was a lot of attention there that I really liked, but there were other parts that I was just kind of left feeling like, okay, they walked onto a CW soundstage, soundstage and this is just, you know, the place that they borrowed from some other place. There are some exceptions. The diner in 24-7 I think is great. The use of the stained glass windows that they have right by the door, kind of a nice collection there. And then also probably the same one that they slide to the side for the restroom. Um, I really like that. I had a really good sense of place for that issue and for that – sorry, for that episode. I'm gonna, Audience, I'm going to say issue and episode interchangeably. <laughs> you know We're what I'm going to do that. <laughs> um, I thought that the diner layout was great. I thought it was really well done and you had a really great sense of space. It helps that you have – the entire episode there. So they make the most of it. I think they like the diner so much that they basically then reuse the set for the next couple episodes. Whenever you have the planners for the serial convention getting together, they put them in the booth. In fact, I had to say to myself, wait, is this the same diner where there was just this violence? <laughs> and part of me in my head originally wanted to retcon it as, well, yeah, of course they're going to go there because it's a fascinating place where this thing happened. But I thought, no, there's a couple of things that seem a little off. So I don't think that's supposed to be the case. We also just know that those are in different parts of uh, of America, right? Even though not appearing here is uh, is Gotham State does not does not exist in uh, this show. We'll talk more about that later. But yeah, I share a lot of your feelings here, Brent. Just in general, that actually I loved 
all of the bits that were shot on an actual location. It, it's the places that were, or the scenes rather, that were shot on a soundstage, and especially a mix of soundstage plus CGI effects that just didn't didn't move me. But anything that was on a in a real location, I thought was awesome. Do you have any feelings here about about costumes? I have one strong opinion about a costume, but I'd, I'd like to hear yours first. There were a lot of things I really liked. There were some things I didn't particularly care for, but there were some things I really liked. I liked when um, we're, we first see Barbie in her purple dress and her sunglasses. Um, I have to say that might be one of my favorite um, like moments watching this show. And I don't know if it's because at this point I'm already kind of irritated by saying the scene Greenfield, um, but then it was delightful. Um, the decision to give Ken a haircut that clearly signifies to the audience that he is uh, a D-bag, I don't know, feels a little on the nose and then makes his dream not like as much of a departure as I feel like it is in the comic. Right. And he didn't look like a Ken doll, right? So the whole Ken and Barbie joke doesn't work. Totally possible. I know nothing about dolls. And even though I have a child, I don't actually know that much about children's toys. I don't know if Barbie is still a thing. So it's possible that that's a cultural reference that works for us Gen Xers, that uh, we're clearly the target audience of this show is not Gen Xers. It's people younger than us, that Ken and Barbie isn't a reference that means anything to them anyway. And so, you know, this is why they made that switch. But yeah, that was a costume change that I, I didn't like as well. And there are lots of things I do like, though. Like, I, I liked a lot of the decisions regarding, like, Judy's apparel, where we didn't have to be over the type with, like, we don't need to put her in a leather jacket that screams 1980s. Okay. Yeah, this is actually my chief complaint about the entire show, is Judy's outfit. We don't, okay. get, the, we don't get the Joy Division jean jacket. And uh, uh, I just, okay. I was out at that point. That was, uh, I mean, I'm being a little bit, I'm being more than a little bit facetious <laughs> here, but it really did bother me. I was so excited about seeing the Joy Division jean jacket and it wasn't there. It broke my heart. It really, like, I really felt despondent for uh, the week that I spent watching that episode that that jacket was not there. It broke my heart, the lack of music in it, not just the lack of music, but the lack of references to music. You know, as we've talked about, as we read through Neil Gaiman's work, not just Sandman, but a whole bunch of it because he started a lot of his career as a music journalist. He wanted to be a musician at one point, which I think there's a point in the eighties where we all wanted to be musicians, but there just wasn't kind of the winking or the nodding. And there were so many great bits. And like, I, I just, I wish like I would have loved. Here's a question for you, actually, Glenn, because it's the specifically the lack of the joy division kind of jacket is missing. Would it have been been made up to you if, at some point, there'd be the riff from Love Will Tear Us Apart playing some point when Judy is on screen or had just been on screen. Would that have made it up to you? That would have absolutely satisfied me. And yeah, let's just move full on into talking about music, which you, which we we know because we've been communicating with each other off mic for a few days. We, we, we know going into this, we have a lot of thoughts about this. Let's talk about the soundtrack before we talk about the score, since that's what we've, we've brought up here. And, you know, by soundtrack here, what we mean is the pop music that appears on screen. That choice would have been perfect for me. And in fact, there's a place where they do exactly that, where they say, we're not doing this part of the story from the book, but we are going to give you a bit of music to stand in for that. And this is the end credits for Playing House, the episode Playing House, where what we do not get, and that also breaks my heart, is we do not get Gilbert telling the story of Little Red Riding Hood. But we do instead, as a consolation prize, get this song called Big Bad Wolf by The Heavy. That, um, 
that didn't work for me. That didn't, you know, that didn't scratch the itch that I needed there. But it was a place where they did exactly that. So why couldn't they have done that with Joy Division as well? Was a was a real thought that I had. And as you have hinted at here, Brent, I mean, this is something that really is missing from this adaptation, right? That music, when it matters a lot to Neil Gaiman, and it matters an awful lot in these first two story arcs of, of the Sandman as well, right? That there are things that are really missing that felt to me to be crucial, I uh, mean, not crucial, or at least not entirely crucial, but important to the issues. And the the big one for me actually was the pop songs that are used in the issue of Dream a Little Dream just mm-hmm. don't exist. We get one nod to that here. We get some Patsy Cline in the episode, but that's actually not a song that appears in the issue. None of the songs that appear in the issue made it into the episode. And I was disappointed in that. But uh, And I think those are probably actually more important in terms of the storytelling in the issue. But I was probably more disappointed actually in the absence of the Velvet Underground in the, the, in the collectors, in the serial <laughs> convention. That also broke my heart. I, I That really is something that stands out for me in my memory of reading this comic as a teenager that really mattered to me. And it was just felt like it was just kind of thrown away uh, that hurt my feelings. It it hurt my feelings a lot, particularly with the character of Johanna Constantine. It'd be great just to have her humming a little tune or singing a little bit. And we could have had more music there. We could have had her singing a song in the way out. There's a great bit in the comic where at the end of that issue, John is singing to himself about, hoping that Mr. Sandman brings him a dream. Oh, it'd be great if, you know, in this case, Johanna Constantine could have like hummed that tune to herself because she finally, you know, was able to at least in some way resolve and convince, you know, Morpheus to do the right thing by her friend that she had abandoned by Rachel. So yeah, it sounds like we were both pretty disappointed in the soundtrack, the use of, of of pop music here. But let's talk about the score, which is really the bulk of the music in the show. Score is written by David Buckley, uh, has been a long working composer for film and especially for television, actually. Uh, other credits that people may have heard him in, uh, the TV show Evil, which is currently still on the air. Also, The Good Fight, uh, for which he won a number of awards. How did you feel about David Buckley's score, Brent. It was fine. <laughs> it was it was perfectly serviceable. It was fine. It was not intrusive. I, I don't like nowadays that like scores to me need to be not be intrusive. But again, I think the leitmotif and stuff for Dream, it works well. It's, you know, got some delicacy to it. It plays into this not being a horror show. I don't know. What were your thoughts? Right. It feels like the music was designed to be utterly inoffensive and therefore also utterly uninteresting. I mean, it was just generic, vaguely fantasy. Uh, There were drone sounds for hell and the vortex, which I don't know, I guess 20 years ago when drone sounds for those sorts of things were new, when Hans Zimmer was first doing that for Batman, that was exciting, but uh, that was just not the right music for hell, certainly was not the right music for the vortex. Either we get Buckley here trying to do vaguely period music for the Men of Good Fortune half of the episode, The Sound of Her Wings. And so the music wasn't even really being used to create a vivid soundscape for the show, to create a world of sound, right? To go with the world of the images here. This actually reminded me a lot of one of my chief complaints about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is that they also don't have this. They just have very generic action music 
over most of what's happening, even when they get really excellent composers. And for me, this is just a horrible missed opportunity. I, I think it's fair to say that one of the things that Netflix is trying to do with Sandman, and in fact, the reason it's fair to say what I'm about to say is that Netflix has explicitly said this. Amazon has also said this about uh, the Lord of the Rings show that they've been doing, which is that there was this quest here for all of these streaming services to do the next Game of Thrones, right? To, to, to find the next amazing, massively popular, wildly successful fantasy epic story. The, the must-watch, yeah. Right, exactly. And the thing is that Game of Thrones is a fantastic TV show. I love the TV show better than the books. It's one of the rare instances where that is uh, true for me, that I like the adaptation better than the source material. One of the features of Game of Thrones that makes it so successful certainly is that they did a lot of filming in beautiful locations and their sets are gorgeous. They have all of that going for them. But it is equally important that they let Ramin Djawadi, the composer, invent a sound world for this show. And I continue to this day, I don't watch Game of Thrones very often. I listen to Jawadi's score for Game of Thrones uh, at least once a month, some part of it. I mean, there's like 20 hours of it. It's amazing material. They could have done that here. Netflix could have made something similar here. They could have said, let's get a composer and give this composer license to create a sound world for this so that Sandman has a a sound to it, right? That you can hear this music and immediately know that this comes from the Sandman, which you can do for Game of Thrones. But you can't do that with this this David Buckley score. It would have been great, among other things, that would have been easy to do, even with the same composer, potentially, is, hey, the music in the dreaming needs to not sound almost anything like the music in hell like anything like the music in the real world. And in fact, perhaps in different people's dreams, when we get to those later, you could have done different soundscapes. And then the vortex could have had the clashing where you could have had the the conflicting kind of thematic stuff happening in a way that, you know, you do it subtly enough so you're not giving people like a headache from it. But still, like, have it be that this isn't correct because you've got music playing over each other. Because there we have Hal singing, but it that should not, that should be an unwelcome interruption for what is going on with Chantel and Zelda and Barbie. Like, cause they should have their own music that's going on that doesn't match with it. And cause it's not what's going on in their dream and something's wrong and something's off. And the decision to basically have be the same music independent of where you are, similar to the same visuals, no matter where you were. Like it just, there wasn't any way to break up. Oh, the dreaming just happens to be, I mean, okay, well, now we're in this part of New Zealand instead of being in, you know, or the soundstage approximating like this part of New Zealand instead of the soundstage approximating this part of New Jersey instead of the soundstage approximating this part of a park in London, right? There, I hit this point because, again, you and I were messaging back and forth and I was trying to scratch my head about like, when he says soundtrack, what the hell does he mean? Is there music in it? And then I was reminded that there is the great bit in the late 80s in the Men of Good Fortune half, back half of the Sound of Her Wings, where he pulls up and Hob pulls up and the Fine Young Cannibals is playing. And man, for you and I, and probably for Neil, like people in, you know, our demographic between Neil's age and our age, and probably not any younger than us, like that song's a banger. And like it comes on, and for some bizarre reason, that is, that's never a song I'll ever put on a playlist, but it's a song that I'm always delighted to hear. Well, I'm with you here, Brent. The the Fine Young Cannibals was the the musical high point of the the whole the whole season for me. I was delighted 
Absolutely delighted to have that in there. Uh, let's wrap up, I think, our uh, uh, complaints about music, of which I think we actually are cutting ourselves off here by doing that, because we still, I think, before we move into talking about some real specifics of the story arc by story arc adaptations, we need to talk about the elephant in the room, which is Tom Sturridge's performance as Dream. Uh, how did you feel about the the main character of this show? As soon as I saw Tom Sturridge's Dream, I thought, he's not right for it. And then I thought, who'd be right for it? And I thought, no one, no one would be right for it. I want dream to be an animated CGI thing. And I'm like, I do not want that at all. That is not what I want. My problem though, is that dream is because he's a metaphysical force that exists and is even beyond and less human than gods are in the comic. Right. I am not okay with a person playing him. And I think I won't necessarily ever be that being said, Okay, so all that is prelude for my initial reactions. I think that Tom Sturridge was fine. I think that he more or less looked as close to the part as you're probably going to have someone get. He has perfected the stare where it looks like he is both angry and crying simultaneously. Uh, it works fine. It, it's not my dream, but I don't know what else he would do. I think he is okay. What were your thoughts about his performance and his appearance? I share your broad sentiments here about, well, who who would have been better? What would I have wanted Dream to actually be? I think that casting of Dream or even just depiction of Dream is one of the things that has made this adaptation take uh, literally decades to get on the air. That It's a difficult task, uh, even just conceptually, to think about how to depict this character. I did not like this depiction of Dream. I was not rendered angry, you know, by by this. I was I felt disappointed though. It wasn't the the dream certainly didn't sound the way that I thought that he should. And really, I just thought this portrayal of dream was kind of boring. And his pouty face was actually just kind of silly. It often took me out of scenes. Maybe some of that, in fact, definitely some of that was because uh, my wife, Elizabeth, does a great imitation of it. And I could see out of the corner of my eye that anytime <laughs> Tom Sturridge was making that pouty face, Elizabeth was staring at me making that pouty face. And uh, maybe that's what took me out of the scenes <laughs> more than anything. But yeah, it was it was disappointing, but I don't know what would have been better. So, you know, I'll put that in my my mediocre column, I guess. The animated cat was great. Good job. That was perfect. Spot on. And when he was Kai cool in hell briefly when interacting with Nada, yes. uh, there were a lot of differences in the choice for the actor there from the comic, but I thought it worked great. We are now more than 30 minutes into this episode, Brent, and uh, we've really just talked about big picture general issues here. We have not actually gotten into any of the specifics of the adaptations here. So let's let's move into that. Let's start with Sleep of the Just. So Sleep of the Just in the show, just as it does in the comic, serves as a kind of standalone prologue that introduces us to the world, introduces us to the character of Dream, and then sets up or sets the stage, maybe we should say, for the arc that is going to come next. And this episode is, I think, largely a straight adaptation of what we get in the issue with maybe three, at least by my count anyway, Brent, uh, three notable changes. And the, the first one that I want us to chew on here is Alex Burgess. They have made Alex Burgess here a kid. And the reason they've done this, or at least our reason, an important reason, is because something we probably should have said 40 minutes ago or so, is that the now of this show is not the 1980s. The now of this show is now, right? The present of the show is the early 2020s. But this prologue, The Sleep of the Just, is still set 
during the First World War. And so they've made Alex Burgess a kid so that it's slightly more plausible that he's still alive in 2020 when Dream makes his escape. But this move also makes him more sympathetic. They make him a much more obvious victim of parental abuse. And you have mentioned this already, Brent. The culmination of this the, this change about Alex Burgess is that Dream does not torture him in the end. And that is a massive deviation from the character of Dream. How did you feel about that? I felt okay with it because I also, I think there's a, there's a couple moments in which young Alex approaches Dream and clearly is trying to initially parrot his father's remarks and then clearly seems like he's sympathetic towards him. And then right after his father dies, he there's a moment which you think he's going to let Dream out and the music swells because this is going to be the person being let out and resolving all of the plot tension in the first like 20 minutes of the show. But then he is being told by someone off screen. Uh, originally, I thought it was um, his partner, but I think it was just one of the guards like, what would your father say? And it's that the abuse that he has suffered is so ingrained that he doesn't know what else to do. I'm torn as to whether or not I believe Dream at this point in his most vengeful, particularly more in the comic than in the show, would actually have let that go and be enough. It feels like in the comic, that's not my dream. My dream would have gone for the vengeance. But I think in the context of the comic and then not wanting to, again, not wanting to lean into the horror of it, we go with the eternal sleeping, which is just like, here's a penalty but a penalty that doesn't involve more money for this episode where we already spent a lot of money. I'm with you here. I didn't mind mollifying Dream's jerkishness for the show. Something we have talked about a lot in reading The Sandman is that we don't really like Dream very much. He's not a, a likable character. He's not a sympathetic character. That's fine in a book. That's fine on page. I think that's a little more difficult on screen. It's especially more difficult when one of the main choices that this Netflix adaptation has made is to actually make Dream much more of a main character and much more of a protagonist than he is in the comics. And so I think making him not torture somebody in your first episode is probably a good move there. And so, yeah, I'm on board with that. I actually quite like what was done with Paul here and Alex for that matter. In fact, I would have liked more of that. And uh, on the topic of would have liked more, uh, another change here, another part of the adaptation of Sleep of the Just are some things that are missing. Uh, as I said, this is set during the First World War, at least, you know, the opening moments of it are, right? The, the capture of Dream and so on. We And we do get in the episode some shots of Unity Kincaid, who's going to, of course, matter later in the season. But we miss all the other characters, or really, maybe don't entirely miss. They're not entirely omitted, but we don't dwell on these other characters who are experiencing the sleepy sickness on screen to the extent that we do on page. And I think generally speaking, we lose the importance of the First World War to the background of this story. I mean, just the real significance of that and thinking of the Sandman as a First World War story in its its genesis. That stuff's all missing. Uh, also, uh, one of my favorite lines from the book, magical war is declared. Aired, uh, just isn't really isn't really here in this episode, and uh, those omissions maybe are fine in the episode, but that's actually the stuff that really mattered to me in the story, and it and it was gone. So this is another place where I was disappointed. Yeah, we did have some of the newspapers delivering bits of things, uh, bits of news of what's going on in terms of World War One, in terms of the sleepy sickness worldwide, but we didn't get panels of other characters. We didn't get 
uh, Bustamante, who you and I really liked seeing like uh, him eventually when he's able to dream. And we are really saddened by like his experience where he tries to get to his city in the clouds and he falls. Right. And then the guy in the, in the trenches who can't sleep at all. Like we, we left off all that. It, when Netflix is similarly about to run all quiet in the Western front, like just take a still of a random extra <laughs> in a trench, slap that in here. Like I don't, who knows what, you know, all the other production company legality would be on that. But you know, if I'm, putting on my dunce cap when it comes to copyright law, like just take the frame and put it in there. I admit that that's, that it's kind of a loss. Um, and one thing that struck me on the newspapers and it kind of, there's a few other times it comes up, but I'm going to mention it here is I was struck by thinking about reading comics and the time that we take and are given for that. So it gives you lots of time to dwell and think about every panel. And particularly like when you sit down to read a comic right now, you can read it super fast, right? You, there, there's not a lot of words. You can go super fast, particularly if you're not going to pay attention to the art or if you're not going to pay attention to the words, either way, real fast read a comic if you want to. On the other hand, you can drench it in and you can spend far longer looking at a single panel where there's like one or two lines of dialogue and maybe the descriptor of the panel would be no more than like a short paragraph, if even, and you can spend, you know, five minutes just staring at that. And, you know, maybe that's too long. Maybe it's not whatever. The point is that like the user is able to digest stuff. So when you have things like on a newsprint newspaper, communicating stuff, you and I can like stop on that panel and try to read the smallest font we can read to try to get out of it. While in this one, unless it's big, big, bold letters, like we can't. And I was struck by that in terms of like how long you have time to think about characters, but also which means you can kind of be more complex in the stories you tell in comics in some ways, because you're not like, nope, 60 seconds later, they're on to a different scene. Yeah, although this material, the way that it was handled on screen here, I mean, particularly just thinking about Sleep of the Just, but really throughout the whole show, felt like Easter eggs rather than felt like part of the actual storytelling. And that's another source of disappointment for me. I have I have more thoughts about that, but I'll I'll save them till we get till we get deeper into this. But you know, by and large, I will say, I mean, I thought Sleep of the Just looked really great. Uh, certainly, Charles Vance yes. as Roderick Burgess oh, yes. was amazing. You know, so it was a really enjoyable episode. I was disappointed by what's missing, but I want to talk. I want to make sure we talk about one more thing that is extra that is here because it's really going to be the glue of the whole season, which is that uh, your favorite nightmare and my favorite nightmare, everybody's favorite nightmare, the Corinthian, is here in Sleep of the Just, even though we don't actually meet him until the doll's house in the comics. Uh, how did you feel about that? I didn't think as much of it initially, but as I went, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I understood why they did it because it's like, okay, let's layer him in, let's set him up as the adversary, but then he ends up being defeated with just relatively the same amount of ease by the time he's confronted. Um, but I really actually like the idea that you have set up and you've tied up a loose end. Like in the comic, we are told like dream is, is, is weakened from some conflict he had and he's in transit back to his realm. And that's why. You know, he's there while here we are set up with a no, no, Lucian tells him you will be in danger if you're among the mortals. And he's like, nope, I got to go get the Corinthian. He's doing things he shouldn't do. And so that's what sets him up. And so Corinthian unintentionally causes the problem. And then from that point on, Corinthian goes out of his way to intentionally like tell Burgess, no, no, this is who you've got. Let's not wait till you find in a tome. Let's, this is how you construct a thing to hold him. Also, 
the Corinthian is in the comic and in the show, you know, a damn charismatic character. And so more of him doesn't hurt. And, you know, in talking to my partner, um, she really liked, you know, I said, you know, what's something you liked about it? And the first thing she said is I liked that the Corinthian was throughout basically the whole show. And so you kind of had the an antagonist and dream, and it wasn't just kind of a series of vignettes and that you did have a little bit more of a through line because of the Corinthian's presence. Yeah, Boyd, Boyd Holdbrook is the actor who plays the Corinthian, and we should just say right up front that he is phenomenal in this role. Uh, a little bit uncanny, in fact, not a little bit, a lot uncanny, though, because with the glasses on, which of course is how the Corinthian appears, uh, Boyd Holbrook looks exactly like uh, Trip Tucker III from, from Enterprise. <laughs> and uh, Elizabeth and I just, we even had to like pause immediately, look it up, and it was hard for us to not just think this is this is trip this is connor trenier from 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 star trek enterprise which is a show that she and i have have watched together and both really really enjoyed and trip being then one of our favorite characters from that show but not the same person at all but really boy seemed to be uh but yeah boyd holbrook was fantastic and i also think that it was a good move if you're going to do two story arcs in a single season, which is what they've decided to do, to find some kind of glue to stick the two of them together. Using the Corinthian as that was a, was a great choice. I don't think it was a great choice to actually do two story arcs in a single season. We can talk more mm. about that later. But no, I thought mm. the Corinthian was uh, was an excellent part of uh, the whole season. And, and uh, I thought it was fun to have him here in this episode as well. Let's move on to uh, the big arc here from Volume 1, with Preludes and Nocturnes. Lots to talk about here. Uh, I think probably since we're praising Boyd Holbrook as the Corinthian, let's just start by talking about Preludes and Nocturnes by equally praising David Thewlis as John D. Or at least I will. I thought David Thewlis was fantastic as John D. David Thewlis is fantastic in everything um, except for where the script fails him. And the places the script has failed him is the Wonder Woman movie and uh, his horrible underutilization in the Harry Potter films. But other than that, David Thewlis, always happy to see. And if even if I'm going to see a script fail someone, I would rather it fail him and he gets a paycheck than it fail uh, someone else and someone else who is not as deserving of a paycheck get one. So, yeah, he was great as John D. Um, I thought the actress who played Ethel Cripps was also great. And also Cain and Abel right away in Imperfect Toasts. Yeah, Cain and Abel, we get quite a bit of. I actually thought that Cain and Abel might be something that was going to be left, uh, not even just on the cutting room floor, but left out of the script altogether. But they were there. I was glad to see them. But part of why I thought they might not exist is that a massive thing that is happening in, well, the whole adaptation is that the DC Comics material is gone. This Cain and Abel in the comics are the Cain and Abel from DC Horror Comics, right? But um, I guess DC doesn't have a copyright on Cain <laughs> and Abel. I can't really do that, right? And so they were able to use them here. It's possible they had to take some care in the way they were presenting them to not step on something that DC does actually have the, the copyright for. But more broadly speaking, what I'm trying to do here is introduce this idea that the DC Comics material is gone. That um, One, this is not a world with capes. So it's not just that the DC Comics material is gone. It's a world that doesn't have active superheroes in it. And that seems maybe like a small change in some ways, but in other ways actually felt to me like a pretty big change. Yeah, it was a change that I was... Um... I understand, but I'm disappointed by because I want the uh, Easter eggs and I want I want Etrigan to make an appearance. Right. And I'm happy to have Johanna Constantine 
right? So I'm glad that we preserve that. It struck me though as odd, and it made sense, but like it struck me as as this weird, like, oh, reminder, we're not giving you what you the full bit of what you want when we have uh, later a uh, Jeb appear in you know the Silver Age Sandman garb, right? That we didn't get a Golden Age Sandman. That we're not. There are no capes. Like the, the Zal is just fiction. The idea that there would be a superhero. Yeah, we didn't get to see Arkham Asylum. That was maybe the big disappointment for me, though I do think that the set that they used, that they made for this prison where John D is being held was was pretty great. It looked really good. I mean, it looked kind of generic. It might have come straight out of Smallville or something like that, but still it was it was well lit. It was it was well designed. But I really wanted to see Arkham Asylum. I wanted to see the Scarecrow. I knew going in we weren't going to get that. And it's a it's a pretty big change and it's a big change that, you know, is going to have ramifications as the show goes on. We do get really in the middle, I would say, of Sandman as you know, in the books, where maybe the DC-ness of the Sandman and the Vertigo line in general doesn't matter so much. But as we come back out, as we start to wrap up the Sandman, that material does come back in a way that that really matters. So I will be interested to see you know, if we make it, if the TV show makes it through the entire arc, uh, how they handle some of those choices as well. And I am being intentionally vague there so as not to spoil things for people who are reading along with us for the first time. Let's talk about Constantine, who you brought up here, Brent. Right, We don't have John Constantine. Instead, we have Johanna Constantine, who it does exist in the comics, of course. Playing this character is Jenna Coleman. I thought, one, this was a great move, and Jenna Coleman was awesome. She was everything I've ever wanted Hellblazer to be. I love this move. I like this move a lot. Um, I'm always happy to see Jenna Coleman. I like the character. The only butts I'm going to have here are going to be on costuming, which is, I want my John to look a little more disheveled. I want, like, the decision, I think, to make Dream stand next to someone with his black coat with them wearing a white trench coat, I just – and partially, like, it's just beige trench coats aren't, like, in fashion the way that they used to be. But still, like, that just put a little bit of, you know, little little smudges a little here and there from, like, you know, the underground or just walking the streets anywhere on that coat or fighting demons. Like, it's just – that John is very well put together. I wish that there was just a little bit more fuss with her clothes, particularly even her memory of going back to the club. Like those jeans clearly have not been worn before. Um, and so like, it was great that they found like jeans that were period appropriate to be like, let's make it a real eighties look like good job. On the other hand, I'm not sure it would be eighties in the context of the show now being in 2022 that like when that's happening, it doesn't feel like that, John would be experiencing that because John doesn't, John isn't Manhattan. John isn't living forever, right? Um, John's really not living forever, you know, depending what they do with the cigarettes, right? Although they took all that out. But um, still, I, I thought Joel and Coleman was great. I think there's some decisions in wardrobe and hair makeup where I wish <laughs> she's a very attractive actress. We want to make her look attractive. She doesn't need to look that attractive. She's still very attractive, even if she's got a little bit of smudge on her, right? These choices are actually, I think, were choices that I really liked. They were part of the what I enjoyed. I, I <laughs> dislike the disheveledness of John Constantine in in the books, in fact. And uh, maybe not, dislike might be too strong. But the reason that John Constantine is disheveled is that hardball detectives are disheveled. And the reason hardball detectives are disheveled is that they're all alcoholics and that's that's the origin of this. It goes back to Raymond Chandler, who himself, of course, was uh, an alcoholic, died from his alcoholism. I'm 
more than okay with uh, getting rid of that that feature of John Constantine here in this adaptation and making making this version of Constantine someone who is a uh, a put together professional. I'm I'm totally on board with that. Lose the chain smoking, lose the hard drinking, uh, and also you know seems maybe to have made that uh, an an arc in the character's life because as you said, we, one of the things that's different about this episode is that we get an actual flashback to the events of Newcastle in the episode where it's just uh, an illusion that's made in the speech in the issue. You and I have gone and on Patreon, we have actually covered that Newcastle issue of Hellblazer. And I'm so glad that we did because there was actually much more of that material here in this episode. And so I'm glad that I knew what that was. That was something I really enjoyed. But on the same token, I have then to ask you a question with your uh, comics historian hat on, Brent, which is that the plot of this episode has some material that is also not in the Sandman. It has a uh, royal and uh, demonic elopement here where a, uh, a demon is about to elope with a member of the royal family. I mean, a demon who's possessed uh, a professional footballer. Is that a real Hellblazer story that we could go check out? Because if it is, I would love to. Not that I recall. I do want to say, though, so I agree with you. The reason why John is disheveled is because terrible detectives are Except for I also will say the reason why John is disheveled and drinks a lot and is kind of a mess is because John is rock and roll. And so in that context, Johanna does it between the lack of music and that this, <laughs> it takes the rock and roll out of and it takes the music out of Johanna. And that's the reason why I wrecked. I'm okay if Johanna is not the hardwell detective. She's more of the like um, manipulative you know, person working the angles kind of similar to her ancestor. Um, I'm okay if you're going to do that, but uh, let's not take more rock and roll out of her. And in a rock and roll sense, like, you know, uh, you know, maybe given the, the timing, maybe not cigarettes, but come on, certainly a little bit of alcohol. Yeah, you. I think you're right here. She could have been a, a little more Veronica Mars. Uh, would, would wouldn't have hurt. But I still, I loved this character. We will. Uh, foresh- I'll foreshadow that and say we'll talk more about that at the end of our episode today. Let's uh, leave preludes and nocturnes behind now, Brandon. Move into talking about an interlude episode here before we get the Doll's House, which is a mashup of one of uh, an issue that you picked as your favorite from Preludes and Nocturnes, and then the issue that I picked as my favorite from the Doll's House, which is the Sound of Her Wings and Men of Good. Fortune. And maybe just before that, even I should say more explicitly for people who have not actually watched this show, is that all of the episodes, or at least most of the episodes, are taking two issues and mashing them up, and then also frequently taking scenes from yet other issues and including them there. And so uh, here they've taken The Sound of Her Wings and Men of Good Fortune and made them this standalone interlude between the two big arcs, which just broadly speaking, I think was a pretty good choice. But so what we get here are two characters that you and I both really love, Death and Hob. Let's just take them in turn here. What were your feelings about this depiction of Death? I really liked it. I thought that uh, Kirby Howe Baptiste did a great job as Death. I thought it really worked. It was, you know, a truncated version of the story that we get in uh, the sound of her wings. Um, there are some additional deaths that we see them visit and additional then, you know, internal thoughts from dream, but they're all kind of not necessary. Um, and I think that stripping to the kind of the more fundamental ones, um, I really, I, I like this death. I liked her carefree attitude. Um, I thought that again, the actress did a great job and it worked for me uh, on a number of levels. I thought it was really good. 
Yeah, same here. When we did our episode on the Audible audio play adaptation of this, I complained a lot about that depiction of death. In fact, complained about it so much that I cut a lot of that from the episode that listeners have actually heard. And so I was <laughs> delighted here, just generically, that death was not an American teenager. That was uh, yes. something I really, really needed. And uh, then this version of death even surpassed that <laughs> requirement that I had. I just absolutely loved this version of death. And I am excited to get more of this version of death in the future. And this version of death, this depiction of death, maybe I should say, also has me excited about any chance there might be of uh, of a spinoff series, of doing the actual death series that, that Gaiman wrote. I would love to see more of this, this adaptation or this depiction of death. I felt completely the opposite, though, I will say, about Hob. I did not care for this depiction of Hob. This depiction of Hob was... Well, the actor was cast for comedy, I think, rather than drama, and that made it hard for me then to take Hobbes' story seriously, right? They they cast someone who was going to deliver the zingers and the one-liners really well, and they did do that, right? That was well done, but it made it hard for me to feel the type of sympathy with this character that I feel so much of in in the book, where Hobbes is one of my favorite characters in the entire run of Sandman. I just didn't didn't care for this depiction. It worked for me, the depiction. I think that I agree with you. He does do best when he's delivering the comedy. It, it worked well enough for me, um, a lot because of the strength of the costuming and some of the set piece that they did over time in it. Um, but it also helps that we, we move at a pretty brisk pace. I cared less for the casting, actually, of um, Shakespeare. I agree. And I thought, but surely they would have cast this actor to play Shakespeare thinking, we're going to do at least two more episodes that have Shakespeare in them and thinking for the long term. But it didn't feel like that. It almost felt like they just grabbed an extra. And so I was really surprised by that. We'll see what actually happens. Maybe they'll recast that character. Uh, you know, there might be other things that were going on there. But no, I, I, I shared that disappointment. And it was particularly disappointing to me just because in the audiobook adaptation, as you know, it's Arthur Darville, who everyone knows is Rory from Doctor Who, who plays William Shakespeare. Right. And uh, is actually going to appear <laughs> in this in this show. Which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But it's just like, well, why uh, find someone else to play the character he was going to play in the show and instead have him play? Uh, yeah, it, it, that was in the lost opportunity. Because given that I assume at some point we will get at least one, if not two episodes that will be, you know, the big award winning issue, then this will be one of the like top, you know, maybe less than Titania, but like still like, let's say fourth build for the episode person, but the name that everyone else will recognize when they come to it, like for the normals, right? Let's go talk about now the other big story arc here, which is The Doll's House. Just to get us situated here, or get listeners situated, really, let me say that this story arc mixes up the order of the comic issues quite a bit more than Preludes and Nocturnes did, and also here splices in the collector's material, or the serial convention, maybe we should say, into all of the other episodes as a kind of ongoing B-plot. I think all of that was actually probably a pretty good idea. Did you like that move, Brent? Or do you, do you wish that the collectors had just existed within one story as it does in the, in the comic? No, I think that the, con you know, the concessions they made to make this a television show that 
you want to watch them through lines works in this way in which it's not just like, let's separate these different things. Let's have the collectors be their own thing. Let's have, particularly when you've already decided the Corinthian is going to be a little bit of a through line. So he is going to be more actively involved in what he might try to use Rose to do. Um, and then therefore, if you're already splaying that out, you might as well also pull out some of the bits from the collectors. Um, and I actually enjoyed some of the, you know, the, the prep sessions that the, I, I love a good meeting. So watching the meetings between the good doctor and, um, Nimrod and, um, Funland in doing the prep and in talking about like, how are we going to get his attention? What do we do? Well, here's what we do. Like, and it just, it makes it pay off nicely. And then it, it but still while getting to avoid the horror roots of a lot of that where they get to kind of a little bit have some of the cake and eat it too. Yes. I think the horror element of this was dialed way down. You could really even almost watch this without fully realizing that this is a convention of serial killers because that's not leaned into. It's not depicted quite as graphically. I mean, you can't, can't totally avoid it. You would figure that out eventually, but it's not quite, it's not nearly as on the nose as it is in, in the book version. But I was, I was okay with that. And I certainly liked the agency that is given to the Corinthian character throughout the whole season, not just this part of the season, but I will say, especially in this part of the season where he figures out this business with the dream vortex and realizes that this is how, now that dream has escaped, this is how he's going to be able to defeat dream and keep his freedom. Right. And so I enjoyed giving the Corinthian this real agency here of him actively attempting to keep his freedom to not have to return to the dreaming or be un uncreated as actually happens to him, that he wants to stay here in the waking world and the lengths that he's going to go to to make that happen. Uh, I thought all of that actually was a really great choice here. I was surprised to discover that I actually enjoyed that. I think that if you someone had just told me that that's what they'd done or were going to do, I would have bristled against that. But seeing it executed, I really enjoyed it. I think the other side of this, though, right, there is a double-edged sword here to giving the Corinthian all of this agency is that I think a lot of Rose's agency was undermined here, and not only because of the Corinthian. There's some other choices that I think undermine Rose's agency. And so Rose, for me as a character, just didn't really work in this adaptation. Whereas I love Rose in the book, here uh, she felt almost, well, not like the primary character. She felt kind of secondary in this adaptation of the story. I, I liked Rose in this um, adaptation. I think part of my problem was not Rose, but it was Rose adjacent, and that was her good friend Lyda. Yeah, that was that was the other choice that I was referring to. Yeah, yeah, the decision to collapse. To, to, I mean, because we're taking the superheroes out, right? So, so there is not any understanding as to what was special about Lyda's ex-husband, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, husband. Uh, deceased husband and instead we're just left with oh no he's just just like matthew if you just die in the dream then you get to be in the dreaming but for some reason he's powerful enough but we don't have him be at any point the one who thinks he's sandman he's not the one being manipulated by you know uh, not brute and glob in this case but instead the galt but i don't like that we don't have the distinct story of lyda and i you know, I'm missing visually. We talked earlier about visual disappointments. I miss the fact of the giant floating in either purple or red, depending on the colorization you're looking at. Like, you know, dream 
palace thing, whatever. And I understand taking out any of the references to the little Nemo comic. It's not going to work here. That's fine. But like there's opportunities to have here that like light, a you know, existing inside, like there's a lot more you could have done and still have Jeb be Jeb, but then have be Lyda also be trapped in that reality with him instead of just a, okay, well let's have Lyda. Rose is really young. Uh, what do we do? Well, let's have Rose's mother be dead. Cause we don't want to deal with another character and let's have Lyda swap in for Rose's mother. So then Lyda is just escorting her everywhere. And then we feel attached a little bit to Lyda. Um, and because of her husband, but it just, I don't know that that all worked. Yeah. I would, I don't have anything to add other than to say that I share your, your grievances here. And this was a, a big disappointment for me. This character is someone who I really sympathized with, really empathized with in the book, but then didn't feel any of that here in the show. And also actually just frankly thought that the way that the pregnancy was handled here was kind of confusing and probably more so to someone who isn't coming with the book knowledge as well. And uh, yeah, I just wasn't compelled by that in ways that I'm super compelled by it in the book. I think now probably is a good time, Brent, though, for us to talk about what is probably the elephant in the room here for The Doll's House, which is the character Gilbert, who you and I both picked as our favorite character of Doll's House. And I think I would have to go back and check my notes, but I think remains our favorite character for at least one of us, if not both of us, uh, in our read of The Sandman so far. So, um, and, and this also was the other piece of news. The only other piece of news I knew going into the show was that Gilbert was going to be played by Stephen Fry. And I was really looking forward to Gilbert. Uh, how did you think about, what did you think about, well, A, Stephen Fry as Gilbert, but then also Gilbert as a character in this adaptation? Yeah, well, I definitely want to talk about everyone else in the house, but let's start with Gilbert because he's an excellent place to start, Glenn. I agree. Stephen Fry, spot on. He was perfect. Um, for me, it worked out real well. I got just enough of him that I wanted more. And I was glad that I did not get more. I uh, couldn't possibly disagree more, Brent. Uh, this, in fact, is perhaps the blackest of black spots on this adaptation for me is that I felt like this character barely existed. Loved Stephen Fry in the role. Let me just be clear about that. But Gilbert barely existed. He didn't have anything to do here. They took his fight scene from him and we don't even get him telling the Little Red Riding Hood story. They cut the road trip <laughs> quite a bit. So he kind of stands around in the hotel lobby for a little bit and that's about it. And that was a huge disappointment to me. In fact, I thought what I wanted going in was more Gilbert. I wanted a real expansion of not just Gilbert, but actually of all of the characters in the house, but mostly and especially Gilbert. So this is a place where I was horribly disappointed. I, I agree that more of all of the characters in the house would be best if they took more time. I think it goes back to the original comment you made is that you'd made like, it'd be better if this was a whole season, right? We should have had a whole season that was just the back half of the season. We should have had stretched out preludes and nocturnes a little bit, not a lot, probably not. We didn't need to go a full 11 episodes with Brothers and Nocturnes, but we could have stretched it out a little bit more and made more of a feast of things. But the doll's house where we're putting, you know, clashing things together, it's definitely could. We had a whole range of great characters and I wanted more of all of them. But I also feel like we basically got other than him not telling the story and him being able to be more of an action hero. We got about as much time panel wise as we would have gotten in the comic, where in the comic, I think 
he looms larger for us than the actual number of panels he appears in. Yes, I think that is true. In fact, I think that's true of all of the characters in the house, right? And this goes back mm-hmm. again to something that you said earlier about the way that we interact with the medium of comics is that we can pause and reflect. And I think this then goes with my general statement of this story was too fast. They did too much in this season that the the two story arcs should have been two distinct seasons. I think they could have done 10 full episodes on Preludes and Nocturnes, or at least eight by actually expanding on the material rather than saying, well, we did a panel for panel or page for page adaptation. And actually, it turns out that 24 pages of comic book can turn, can easily become 24 minutes of screen. So we just do two comics per episode and we're done because then because that type of adaptation felt too fast. It never felt like we got to sit with any of these characters the way that I do feel like we get to in reading the comics. And it really, this really felt true for me in The Doll's House. It felt truer for me in The Doll's House than in Preludes and Nocturnes, because I feel like I know intimately each of these characters in this house from the comics, but don't feel like I got to know them at all on screen. Gilbert's my biggest complaint, of course, but I felt this way about Ken and Barbie. I felt this way about the Spider Women. I felt this way about Hal as well. We get nothing actually, even in the Hal story here about his uh, his one that got away, for example. And I, I really wanted to sit with these characters for much longer. Well, and we didn't get bits of Rose sitting in her room trying to like figure things out, and then being confused by the presence of you know, the bird outside the window and hearing Gilbert through the wall and before having met him and hear him, you know, playing music on his phonograph. And like, you know, also we didn't get her playing music, which would have given an excuse to listen to music and just kind of the, you know, from the panels, like that reminds me of a place that I have lived. It reminds me of any number of places that I lived and just like gradually meeting the roommates versus just like, no, no, uh, everybody line up. Okay. Here are the roommates. Okay. Now we've done that. So it would have been nice to be able to have an episode where you're living with these characters and then for, you know, your edge of your seat and you're cutting to the people preparing for the serial killer convention and you have Dorinthian walking around and dripping with charisma elsewhere. But like have a slow kind of, you know, a slow southern afternoon sitting on the veranda at the house, I think is really what you and I would want, right? That's exactly right. And then the result of so quickly getting to meet these characters and then being done with them meant that when we get to what probably is, I guess, the climax of this part of the the arc, which is the vortex happening, right? Rose becoming the vortex and the dream barriers of the walls coming down. I was unmoved. I was uncompelled by the experience of that, that these characters were having in ways where in the book, I'm very invested in, in that experience. My problem with the dreams and the dream barriers were um, in the comic, we get wonderful, distinct visual styles. And, you know, you're in my favorite panels from this particular issue. I remember talking where I picked the one that was Chantel and you picked the one that was Zelda. And we had the wonderful parallel of them occurring simultaneously. And depending on, you know, how you decide to read a comic, you could be like jumping between them, or you can be just reading across the top row and then going to the bottom row. And either of those ways are correct ways potentially to be reading the material, depending on, you know, your how well you can 
tend to what's happening. And I like some of the decisions. I like that Chantel was giving an audience at the Library of Congress um, because you're not going to give me the font. But it would have been wonderful if we'd had some visual differences between the dreams. Well, are you ready to go talk about some cats? Yeah, I think let's talk about yeah. some cats. <laughs> right. So I guess a few weeks, maybe a month after all of the episodes we've talked about so far were published on Netflix, then there was a bonus episode that Netflix published that was a combined Dream of a Thousand Cats and Calliope from Dream Country. It's uh, an hour-long episode, but it's it's not split in uh, equal portions. Dream of a Thousand Cats is about 15 minutes long, and then we get a 45-minute uh, episode on Calliope. Those are all rough numbers there. But Dream of a Thousand Cats comes first here. I love this episode. It was an incredibly faithful adaptation. But the thing that really matters is that uh, we get a Neil Gaiman cameo as the dead crow. Now, I noticed this right away. Of course, I recognized Neil Gaiman's voice. So I turned to Elizabeth and said, hey, that's uh, Neil Gaiman voicing that character. Uh, that at least is the version of the story the way I tell it. When Elizabeth tells this story, though, what she will say is that, and then Glenn squealed. He turned and looked at me and said, that, that's Neil Gaiman. And uh, that's probably the truer version of the story. I mean, that makes sense. Uh, I internally squealed, um, and uh, but I definitely got excited. I think I... It was probably equal to the excitement I got where I internally squealed and kind of, you know, adjusted myself in the seat as I like, you know, paid more attention than I got when I got Barbie in the purple dress with the glasses and Martin Tenbones. Because Martin <laughs> Tenbones. <laughs> yeah, I, I squealed as well at Martin Tenbones. And in fact, just prior to Martin Tenbones showing up, I turned to Elizabeth and said, oh my gosh, I don't think they're going to put Martin Tenbones in here because he hadn't shown up on cue. They had made some change and I was panicked about it. And then when he showed up, I don't think I squealed so much as just gasped. And so, yeah, there was a lot. Elizabeth had a lot, a lot to sit next to, which is perhaps why she was making Tom Sturge's pouty face at me all the time. Yeah. Uh, but no, the Dream of a Thousand Cats was great. Um, I thought it was really well done. No disrespect to any of the voice actors who they had do the voices here. I kind of was hoping for a return of B.B. Newworth doing the voice of the cat. In fact, it just uh, because of the way licensing works, uh, they could not have done this. But part of me was just like, yep, you probably could have just taken the audio from the audiobook, Right. <laughs> cut out some of the narration and laid it on top of the, you know, but it was, it was, it was very well done. The visuals were great. Um, the animation was, I think, hit the right note in terms of familiar, but a little bit, particularly of the houses and stuff, um, the interior spaces felt slightly watercolory, which worked in terms of how, particularly when the Siamese is remembering kind of the life of leisure before she realized, you know, how terrible her owners were in the captivity. So anyways, I, I really liked it. I love this adaptation of Calliope as well, I will say. And in fact, this adaptation of Calliope does exactly what I have wanted from the whole rest of it, which is they expanded the story. <laughs> they took the material from the comic and said, let's do a little more here to flesh this out. And so this was a much better paced so this was a much better paced story than I think any of the others that we got. It gave us time to sit with these characters, time to breathe a little bit. It just didn't feel so breakneck to me. Specifically, what we get here is a lot more of Maddock being Maddock even before he actually gets Calliope. And that was something that really worked for me just in terms of exploring that character more. But it also worked for me just in terms of having some time, getting some time to 
ease into the world of this story. And so this, for me, was really probably a blueprint for how the rest of it ought to have been ought to have been done. I liked how Calliope played out. They did not shy away from, but they did not relish in um, any of the sexual assault that occurs. Um, um, we're given a lot more time to see him, as you said, before we launch into him actually getting Calliope to see Richard. Um, um, we don't ever see him move locations, which is probably just a, a useful thing to do for filming. Definitely for this one, I'm sure during COVID. Um, but also just cost wise, you don't have him moving to different places. He references moving to LA potentially, but in the comic, we get the, like how he manages to like, you know, sneak her in dead of night to the other place. Um, it allows the production department to spend more time just laying out his study, how it looks, um, somewhat juxtaposed with the slightly barren, but not as barren as you'd think room that she is in. Um, she clearly is imprisoned and it is a bad situation, but it is not just like a, here is a, you know, cot or a bunch of like straw. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I really like it. I like it at work. Um, I like that then they put him instead of just finding some random wall, it's like, no, here's a stairwell that he is, you know, scrappling his fingers on. Um, yeah, I missed the I missed the newsy character though. It was a shame that we didn't get the newsy because they did this in a stairwell. <laughs> um, I guess it was, it was a campus of some sort, a university campus of some sort. But uh, uh, yeah, R.I.P. Newsy lost on the cutting room floor. But otherwise, no, this was all a good choice. I mean, this was done really as kind of a bottle episode in a sense, right? It's all quite self-contained. You don't have to move uh, sets very much. I think it was probably all entirely actually done just on a sound stage, but didn't feel like it. In fact, this was also an episode where I liked just the look of it more than in many of the other episodes as well. Yeah. Um, I thought the look of it was very good. I think that the casting was was good throughout. Um, again, I wish Rory was Shakespeare, but I, I'm happy to see him nonetheless be in it if he's not going to be Shakespeare. Um, I like that we see his bloody fingers before we see up the stairs. That's the great thing about the stairwell too, is that it lets it, there, there is an ominousness that like you, we, we're bracing for it because we're like, they're going to show the bloody, why there's bloody stumps, right? Is it going to be on the stairs or on the wall? Is it going to be on the stairs themselves? But like, if you came in cold, I think there'd still be the like, oh God, what happened to his fingers? And then cut to the stair wall, stair looking up past him at the stair well uh, wall, then you'll have a great bit of terror there. Um, I think that there is a nice building of tension for his decisions to ultimately uh, sexually assault Calliope versus trying to woo her. Um, I think that that probably makes this a very hard watch for anyone who um, uh, might be triggered by these things. So um, I think that this is definitely becomes an episode to pass, which is the reason why it drives me crazy that it's combined with Dream of a Thousand Cats. That's right. Yeah. And in fact, this this issue, when we covered this issue, the episode that we did, this was the first time anywhere on the network that we'd ever had offered a content advisory at the top of a show. And uh, yeah, you put a cute story about cats in front of it. That's the opposite. And is actually kind of pretty irresponsible, to be honest. It's not just a kind of a dumb idea. It's pretty irresponsible to to do that. Uh, very strange. Yeah, I had a lot of thoughts, actually, and feelings, perhaps, about the content advisories that show up at the beginning of every episode. Uh, we didn't talk about how the uh, the SIDS 
the Sid's baby right there in Sound of Her Wings, I thought surely they're not going to include that because they didn't list it in the content advisory, listed all sorts of other things. That wasn't there. That was the one thing I needed. But uh, yeah, so I, I have some gripes and some complaints about that as well. Well, since we are looking back on material we have already talked about, I think that's a good time for us to move into our final thoughts here. We're just going to do three things here. We're going to pick some favorite characters, pick favorite episodes. Let's start with favorite episodes. So Brent, what was your favorite episode of this first season of the Netflix Sandman TV show? Uh, This was tough because a lot of the episodes I thought were kind of uneven and didn't like certain choices they made. Um, I think I'm going to have to go, even though probably some of my favorite moments are not in this episode as a whole start to finish. My favorite episode would probably be, um, the sleep of the just it would, because that's where they put the money. It's where I love to see everyone's highly good at everything, except for being a father, disapproving father figure, um, you know, um, Tywin Lannister. Um, it just. I really like it. It sets the tone really well. We get Martin Tenbones on a boat in the first five minutes of the film. Uh, we don't see him again for a while. And as you said, like, I forgot he was there until a rewatching. And so I had a similar moan of like, are we going to get Martin Tenbones or not? Like, I don't know. Um, but it's, there's a lot going on. Um, we get the gates, we get all kinds of wonderful things. That's where they put their money. I understand logically why they do it. I wish that they would also put, resources elsewhere but as a standalone and as the best sleep of the just is really what worked for me what about you i think that's a great choice that probably is number three on my list and in my version of this where we just got preludes and nocturnes as a 10 episode series here sleep of the just was a as a 90 minute movie maybe even a two hour movie where we get all of that material put back in uh, i know you know this is probably the reason i'm not actually allowed to be in charge of netflix or any other TV studio for that matter. But yeah, Sleep of the Just was actually, I think, quite a good episode. My favorite, though, was, of course, the material that we get from Dream Country. I think no one will be surprised to hear that I liked Dream of a Thousand Cats and Calliope. And I guess the one convenient thing about them being combined like that is I get to pick them both here. Uh, but since we just <laughs> literally spent 20 minutes talking about that episode, uh, let me just offer up my my runner up here, my second choice, which is Dream a Little Dream of Me. This is the, the Johanna Constantine story. This I really loved. This is another place where they actually expanded on the story, made some sensible alterations to give us more rather than to give us less, to take a different tack on the character as well. So again, this was a this was more of the tone that I wanted the rest of the show to be. I also just super, super loved Jenna Coleman in this role. I really want there to be a spinoff here. I want her to go get a Hellblazer show. I, I don't know if that can happen, but uh, if there's a petition out there, I hope someone will direct me to it because I will sign it. And uh, maybe that's a good segue into uh, immediately talking about our favorite characters, because for me, well, it was Jenna Coleman as Johanna Constantine. Yeah, and that that makes sense. And she does a great job. Again, my only frustrations with the character are uh, mainly the lack of music around her, which is not her at all, uh, and some of the costuming decisions. um, But you and I kind of part ways a little bit on that. But uh, no, she did a great job. She was definitely in contention for my favorite character as well. Uh, But ultimately, I think, uh, and I've wavered a little bit on this here and there on a couple options, but I think I'm going to go with the Corinthian because I really think that he just manages to nail this wonderful charisma that isn't really doesn't come across in the panel that well. 
um, in terms of being kind of, you know, a force for will who like people are really happy to let in their apartment and to like, you know, trust. Um, and he's just, uh, the, the the costuming decisions with these sunglasses, which are a nice concession to not have to do the teeth all that much. I wish they hadn't revealed the teeth in the first episode uh, in the eyes. I wish that we had a delay on that. But um, nonetheless, uh, as a character, I really like the Corinthian. I think that he is aided by the fact that he has more agency at helping. You know, he's not the one who imprisoned Dream, but he indirectly had some responsibility for him being in the place to be imprisoned. And then he, as soon as he found that out, laid into, oh, I'm going to take advantage of this um, and make sure that happens as long as possible and make sure that, you know, Burgess has what he needs. Uh, maybe see about getting uh, Ethel Grips to do what she needs to do. Nonetheless, get, you know, kind of defeated by her and the amulet protection. But anyways, there's. There's a lot of great stuff, and I think that the actor just does a wonderful job um, of giving us a Corinthian that um, really works well. And I think in rereading the comic, I will probably be substituting in a lot of his voice for my headcanon now and imagining like the additional pick, the additional material we have of the Corinthian, even if it doesn't fit the comic story, uh, it plays out kind of the feel of that character in a way that enriches it to me. Yes, Corinthian, a fantastic choice, I will say to you and to all other fans of the Corinthian. Uh, the next thing to watch is Star Trek Enterprise. Uh, go check it out and just pretend that's the Corinthian as the engineer of that uh, that starship. Well, Brent, we have come to the end here. When I sent you the outline of this episode, my thinking here of really of writing the outline the way that I did was, let's start positive and then get into the nitty gritty where we'll probably be a lot more negative And then we can finish <laughs> up with asking, did we like it? But uh, the exact opposite happened. We started out so negative uh, and then said a lot more positive things here at the end in the nitty gritty. So I don't know, I'm learning some lesson there. But nonetheless, I still want us to finish off here on this question of, did we like this show? Will we watch this show again, just on our own for fun? Will you? I don't think I will. Uh, I think that there's not really much reason for it because I have the books, which I prefer. Uh, I think, though, that said, I, I could envision every once in a while actually wanting to watch Dream of a Thousand Cats and or Calliope. I don't think I would watch them as a single episode the way they are packaged together. But I could see maybe coming home from a hard day working somewhere and maybe not feeling like I want to read. Maybe it's because actually I also want to be eating or something like that and putting on Dream of a Thousand Cats uh, to just enjoy being in this world a little bit and and getting a story that I love so much. But by and large, yeah, I don't think I have a lot of utility for this adaptation. I'll be honest, though, I don't think that even if it were a better adaptation, I'm not sure that my answer about that would change. I'm a book person, not a not a screen person to begin with. But you're much more of a screen person than I am. So I, I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts about this. Yeah. And, that, and that's part of why I wanted you to answer first, um, even though you were throwing to me first. But um because I've actually already – so because of uh, the timing of which we're recording this versus when it came out, I watched like the first five episodes, six episodes uh, by myself. And then I watched all of those again pretty quickly thereafter uh, and then fin and eventually finished the whole series with my partner. Uh, and then in preparation for this, I was kind of speed watching the first four episodes again. So the first four episodes of the show, I've actually seen three times. Um, and I do have to remark that the show is better on repeated viewings. 
particularly for us. I'm not sure it would be for people who aren't familiar with the comics, but if you are familiar with the comics after your first viewing, when you know, you already know what to be disappointed that has been cut out or truncated and you already know what beats you're going to hit, you can just enjoy it. Um, and in that way, there are a lot of nice things to pick up on enjoy. Some of them, you know, I picked up on the first time. Some of them I picked up on the second time or even the third. Some I've thought about more even as you've talked and convinced me in some ways to maybe give a second thought to some of the, what I consider some of the shortcomings with the Constantine, you know, um, decisions on hair and makeup, but maybe I'm, I'm wrong and I'm, I'm, I think that I maybe have a new appreciation for that character on a second viewing. So, um, Will this, is this on par with, you know, what I had hoped when I said a Sam series, here's Sam series was going to come out? No, this is not great television. I think it is very good television. Um, I think it references great material and really all it does is get me to want to go reread the comic, which I'm going to go do now. Um, which is great. Um, that probably would have been a problem no matter what. I think this could have been much, much worse. This could have been at least even more mediocre, if not terrible. Um, and I'm, I think that the changes they made, I think were changes that were not terrible. Um, again, I think there were some places where I wish they had done more. Um, but like, uh, there's a much ballyhoo in terms of some of the visual depictions and stuff because it's comics are visual medium too. So people upset about things for good and ill reasons, usually ill, but regarding some of the changes in casting, those all worked for me. They worked for me fine in this comic. And in some ways, uh, it, things were improved by some of the changes that were made visually. Um, and a lot of updating that was occurred nicely to set it in 2022 versus the eighties and early nineties worked great. I, I want more time with these characters though. And in reading the comic, I can spend a whole page just admiring, you know, what Princess Barbie is talking about in terms of the dangers to the porpentine. Um, that I'm not gonna, I've got 10 seconds on the, on the screen. Um, and so that's kind of where the self-pacedness of literature and comic books and, and other, you know, poetry and prose, um, will win out over visual mediums where, uh, it doesn't quite work if you hit on the play at half speed. Um, so I thought it was good, but not great. I think I did like it on the whole. I think I liked it more second time around. Um, I would not urge anyone to rush to see it a second time around. What I would say is, Glenn, I think you should revisit Sandman season one right before Sandman season two comes out in however many you know months or probably years before that happens. That would be my recommendation to you. Right, which we will do, uh, because we know that there is going to be a second season of this. It's also pretty clear from the way that this season ends, I mean, before we get the Dream Country bonus episodes, that is, that they're going to Season of Mists. And so uh, I'm excited about that. I'm really curious to see how they'll do that, and then also what it might get paired up with. Of course, I don't read any news about this, so listeners are probably saying, Glenn, you could you could know this. But I choose not to know these things. Uh, but I'm excited about it nonetheless. And I will watch the show again uh, before we do that, so that I you know, can get myself back in the show world of this before uh, before then. And uh, yeah, I, I am, even for all the disappointments I had in this season, nonetheless, Glad that this got renewed and excited about uh, being able to see uh, see more of this and uh, excited to see how they do it. And I think on that uh, hopefully positive note, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. 
Next time, we will be back with The Dream of Earl Aubeck. This is an Elric-ish short story by Michael Moorcock. Uh, Very, very excited to talk about this with you, Brent. But until then, pleasant dreams.